Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, Truly a man for all seasons, Dr. Bill Doherty. He's an LMFT, an educator, a researcher, a consultant, a community organizer, an all-around good guy. He's a clinical fellow, an approved supervisor for AMFT. He received his PhD in family studies from the University of Connecticut in 1978. He's served on the faculty of the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Iowa really an innovator, as you'll learn today, in the field of medical family therapy. He's made stops at the University of Oklahoma before coming to the University of Minnesota, which has been his home since 1986. There he is a professor and director of the MFT program in the Department of Family and Social Science in the College of Education and Human Development. Bill's also a past president of NCFR. We know that as the National Council on Family Relations, the nation's oldest interdisciplinary family studies organizations. He's won numerous awards throughout his career and has authored and edited over nine books uh, for professionals and lay people alike. Since 1999, he's been involved with the Families and Democracy Project and the Citizens Healthcare Project. And you'll know him more recently from a popular movement in our field known as discernment counseling. I learned so much in this interview. Bill and I have had a chance to meet a couple of times over the year, but even I learned some things. And you'll you'll hear really how Bill was on the forefront as far as advocating. We think of advocating within a smaller system. I consider Bill the first kind of macro-level family therapist pushing for change and taking systemic principles and using them in other settings. I uh, will be back at the end. Enjoy, Dr. Bill Doherty. All right, Bill, welcome to the AAMFT podcast, and this is probably, if not my favorite, one of my favorite segments, the interview. And I got to, before we start here, give you some credit in the sense that uh, you indirectly uh, were the inspiration uh, for this and that I was converting over some old VHS AAMFT master's tapes uh, from the late 80s. Uh, at the annual conference where you would interview the pioneers. All have since have been deceased. Uh, in fact, I think what I remember uh, quite fondly was you interviewing, I think, Murray Bowen just literally a couple weeks before he passed away in the late 80s, right? A cu- couple of days. Oh, wow. And you've had an amazing career and fascinating life spanning you know, over four decades, and you looked like a baby when you were in these uh, these, these uh, videos. Uh, what are your memories from interviewing those pioneers over those series of years at the, at the conferences? Wow, very, very powerful. It's almost like it was yesterday. You know, the impetus for that, and by the way, let me just say I'm delighted to be with you on this 
podcast. Um, but the, the impetus was um, the death of Virginia Satir in, in the late 80s uh, and the sense that the pioneer generation were beginning to leave us and uh, that we had a lot of videos of them we had professional interviews um, you know when I say professional I mean you know interviewed about their models um, but we didn't have much that connected their life story with their family therapy work uh, and uh, so I was on the program committee at that time and we decided we should do something. We should try to capture their stories, the, the connection between their personal biographies and their uh, their family therapy pioneer work. Uh, and uh, I had no uh, I no thought to do it myself to do the interviews with Mnuchin and Haley and Whitaker and all these great people. Uh, but then uh, you know I was sort of uh, pushed into it. Um, because the thought was that if there was somebody a lot more senior than me, um, so I was uh, 13 years into my career at that point, if somebody was very senior, they might feel competitive with those folks. You know, why, why, why weren't they being interviewed themselves? And if they were too junior, maybe they would be intimidated. So anyway, uh, I, I, the people sort of pressured me to, to do the interviews. Uh, and it took months of preparation, uh, and um, uh, and there was this sense of uh, en encountering these people as human beings, not just as uh, heroes of my professional development. Well, it has come full circle for you, my friend, because that is very much in the same vein of which we are entering this. How did you decide to become a marriage and family therapist? Yeah, well, I um, I started out after high school in a Catholic seminary. So in 1963, when I graduated from high school, um, there were two things I thought of, of becoming. One was a psychiatrist, that's all I knew about mental health professionals, and, and a priest. And uh, this was, you know, the, the uh, er, er, you know, this was many years ago, and it was pre uh, Vatican Council reforms in the Catholic Church. The Vatican Council had started, but I wasn't quite in tune with that. And so I thought of, well, if I'm a psychiatrist, I save minds. If I'm a uh, if if I'm a priest, I'll save souls, right? And saving souls seemed to be a you know a higher calling. Uh, so I went to a Catholic seminary and. And, uh, you know, that was in a time of upheaval in the 60s, and I was living in Washington, D.C., and, you know, participating in the marches, anti-war protests, and civil rights things, and, and uh, I, you know, and I became radicalized during that time. Uh, and my pastoral field work was in um, an inner-city Catholic uh, school uh, where I uh, worked with the kids and I visited their parents, got into the homes, I got to know these families really well. Uh, and so when I decided to leave seminary, and I left in 1970, um, before I was ordained, uh, I knew I wanted to work with families. Um, and uh, so I didn't know about the field of, uh, of MFT at that time. Uh, it was, you know, it was just, be, it was kind of invisible. Um, but I, uh, I knew I wanted to work with families, and so I thought psychology, social work, uh, uh, those routes. Uh, and then by happenstance, um, uh, in a transitional year after seminary, uh, 
it was a couple years of transition before I went back to graduate school, um, I had a seminary classmate who um, was enrolled at the University of Connecticut in the Human Development Family Studies uh, Department and was uh, studying marriage and family therapy. Uh, and I, I knew he was in graduate school, I didn't know what he was studying, but I was in touch with him and he invited me and my wife up to visit him and uh, all of a sudden I discovered there was this field of MFT and this field of family studies where I didn't have to go to a psychology program or social work program and maybe have one course in family you know uh, just you know, or maybe two if I was really lucky, um, but that I could really focus on understanding families and I could focus on family therapy. Uh, so it was like, whoa. And so I actually had these applications to more traditional programs already typed up uh, and I tore them up uh, and I said, I want to go to this family studies uh, program and uh, and that's the only application I sent. I didn't even investigate others. Uh, I just knew that's where I wanted to go, and I got in. And this was like a, a very furtive time. It was the golden age of family therapy, even though, as you said, it was this uh, kind of cast of characters from different disciplines uh, forming the field. So what are, your, uh, what are your best memories of that formative time in Connecticut as far as who influenced you? Well, what I recall, uh, I went to graduate school in 72, uh, and um, what I recall was how little there was available that was helpful to actually work with families in the room. I remember uh, Virginia Satir's book, Conjoint Family Therapy, and, you know, that was helpful. It was very communication-oriented, uh, you know, teaching about communication. Uh, there were other books and articles out but they were they were kind of general theoretical it was really hard to know what to do in the room and so when I got my uh, first placement um, as a, as an MFT in 74 that was the year that Salvador Mnuchin's Families and Family Therapy came out and it was a revelation uh, be, not only because of this beautiful theory, um, uh, these concepts about boundaries and enmeshment and so on and triangulation, uh, but a method, a method, you know, you join the family first and then you work at restructuring, you use yourself in it, you, you go back and forth between the generations, you're, you're like a choreographer. And um, I read that book uh, and used it uh, when I worked with families. And what I can say is that um, the supervision available at that time uh, was not by, by people who were uh, well-trained in family therapy. Uh, they were folks from other disciplines uh, who kind of morphed into the, the marriage and family therapy area. Uh, one of the main faculty members uh, in the department was a, uh, was a couples therapist. Uh, it was, we, you know, we called a marriage counselor in those days who did not work with intergenerational families. Uh, there was actually, it was very hard to find anybody to supervise me. So I, I actually had to go outside of the department uh, and hire um, a clinical social worker with background in family therapy to supervise me because 
uh, it's hard for maybe students and others to think of it now, but oh my goodness, the, the faculty were, who were in my department uh, had been hired in the 60s and family therapy was not much around then and so these folks you know didn't didn't um, they didn't have a lot of experience what can I say I don't mean to put them down they're good in the classroom but I had to go outside for the supervision I paid for my own supervision and oh my goodness was it electrifying to take uh, families and family therapy and go in and actually work with families it was, it was just it was a high uh, and that's a feeling anybody that listens to this whether you're young uh, or old to the profession when you have that first experience with a family and these concepts come to life and you are a part of making something happen and change happen. It is a, it's really a, an amazing kind of undescribable feeling, but you know when you have it. So you, you mentioned something too, and it's, it's a, a very personal question, but uh, you're a very uh, you know, forthright guy. Uh, the decision to leave the priesthood, um, could you talk about that? Um. In terms of why I left seminary, I just, you know, I became a different person through the 1960s than I was uh, when I entered in 1963. I did a lot of what's called clinical pastoral education training, chaplaincy training. Uh, I started to become aware of an inner emotional life. Um, and uh, so my needs for intimacy for, for connection to be a fully sexual person they those needs were really inconsistent with a lifetime of celibacy so when, when I talk about it in more flip terms I say I flunked celibacy which was a required course um, and particularly every springtime but at a deeper level um, I just got in touch with um, who I was and what, what I needed in life and you know I knew I wanted a partner in life um, uh, and um, and and that was not consistent with uh, with seminary, um, so, but I had discovered families and work with families, uh, and uh, and that's that's what I carried over. Uh, I, I worked for a couple years after seminary in um, in child. Um, uh, some institutions for kids with emotional problems who had bounced out of uh, their families, uh, foster care, they, they couldn't handle foster care, so they were in more institutional settings. And what I saw there was that even though by kind of objective standards, uh, their, their parents were, you know, not highly capable parents. I mean, you know, the, 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 many of them had abused their kids, uh, abandoned them. These kids had a lot of problems that came back to their families they longed for their parents the parents were uh, were more important people to them in their in their imaginations in and when they did have contact with them so I was supervising uh, child care staff in the institution you know who were their house parents we called them but those house parents even though when the kids bonded with them didn't hold a candle to the power the power of their their original parents and so that was another one of these uh, lessons in we can't we can't do um, a, 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 a kind of uh, avoidance of parents we can't do a, uh, a, a, a we can't assume that those parents are just in the past for these children they're, they're never really in the past um, and so that was another kind of formative experience that, that made me want to work with families Let's say a little bit about your own, uh, you mentioned a large Irish Catholic family, your own family of origin, because, you know, we, uh, lots of times, MFTs, they, you know, they know their blueprint, the the families they work with and the one that they came from, and it, it forms a lot of our opinions of 
what we want to do and what not to do and just in general what was it like growing up in the Doherty household well it was uh, uh, we had five kids and and two parent house where were you in the birth order there well I was the second child the uh, I have an older sister and then I was the first uh, boy uh, and then uh, and this is where I learned about loss in families um, a, a uh, um, well, I had a sister who lived, but then two, then a stillbirth uh, and a little baby brother who died uh, several weeks old, um, and then um, and then two brothers, um, surviving brothers, uh, eleven and thirteen years younger than me. So, a spread from my older sister to my youngest brother of fifteen years, and so I, um, um, I one of the things that was so important in for me, I realized in my development was having these younger brothers. Um, I was, um, you know, teenager when they came along, and I was involved in caring for them and uh, diapering, feeding, watching them, um, and uh, that that was something that um, it wasn't all that common during that era. You know, grew up in the '50s into the early '60s, and so it gave me a comfort with with young children that was helpful in my family therapy work and also helpful for me as a father. Um, the other thing I want to say about my family of origin was um, intensely religious and Catholic. Um, the I grew up in the most densely Irish Catholic community in the United States. Um, during the height of the baby boom, I was just the early stages of the baby. Uh, there were a hundred, um, there were 3,300 children in the parochial school. A uh, hundred uh, kids in each classroom of uh, in my brother's classroom. So it was a bubble. It was a time of history, uh, the 1950s, uh, of um, economic prosperity for lots of families in the country, um, working class um, background. My father could, he was a bread man, like a milkman, you know, he delivered bread. He could make a salary uh, that could support a family of that size with a stay-at-home mother uh, and and homeowning, uh, uh, and so there was this um, this time when um, when the, the, you know people often look back on the 50s nowadays you know as this time of uh, of conformity and uh, uh, you know uh, women were supposed to stay in the home this was pre second wave feminism um, but it was also and that's all true uh, but there was it was also a time uh, for many of us of uh, of opportunity um, uh, the sense that we could go to college nobody in my family history had ever gone to college but there's a sense that that's possible to do uh, professional life was opening up so it was a uh, there were uh, you know lots of lots of positives on the other hand it was also my parents came from what Mary Pfeiffer calls a pre-psychological generation and I think it's a kind of a lovely term because their approach to family life their approach to marriage their approach to parenting was about performing your roles about doing your duty of uh, being having a good character uh, and uh, not not much of uh, psychological language they certainly didn't know the language of self-esteem for example uh, and it was an era in which <clears throat> parents uh, you know love the kids set set limits on them and just sort of let them grow up um, and um, but without a lot of kind of uh, in-depth psychological conversation uh, and what's interesting is that you know when I 
when I studied therapy and um, uh, and early on, even when I was in seminary, it was humanistic. It was uh, it was Carl Rogers and so on. And and the it, when I was in graduate school, I think it's important. I'm, we're emphasizing for this uh, interview the the MFT part of it. But the the 70s, the 60s and 70s were a high water mark of humanistic uh, psychotherapies. The uh, the the, the uh, non-directive, the Carl Rogers, the the Maslow, the hierarchy of needs, all of that, very very personal development oriented uh, when I was in graduate school I did a lot of encounter groups and tea groups and all that kind of training and and uh, at that time I didn't have what I subsequently developed and that is a kind of cultural socio-cultural understanding of families and that is that families uh, kids parents raise their kids in a particular cultural milieu and and they they their, their marriages are the same so when I first learned family therapy and more the humanistic approaches and I looked back on my family of origin I really emphasized the ways in which my parents um, uh, you know in, in which there were boundary challenges and there was the kind of like a kind of moralistic and guilt guilt laying it was it was hard to speak out against anything if you had any concerns about the church authority there were secrets um, there were family of origin cutoffs out there that that, that everybody kept secret. So uh, so it's possible to look at all this as I did once I learned family systems. And, oh my goodness, I come from this you know completely dysfunctional family, um, and um, and uh, and 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 then subsequently I began to look at my family. Um, not that those things are not there, uh, but of coming from a particular historical period, uh, and what Mary Piper calls these were pre-psychological folks, uh, and everybody their generation it was that I knew of, uh, and they did their best uh, raising us and having a family for that era, um, uh, and um, and so I came to accept them more rather than just critique them. So it's interesting. Um I mean that background you went from parents that were very valued centered and and obviously a strong faith based uh, and when you go from when I think of your career uh, one of the things I think about is going from like you said growing up that way very value centered to going to psychotherapy at the time as you said which was very uh, you know the idea if you owned values uh, and you were value oriented, that was a bad thing, or that stopped the therapeutic process to now going full circle to your work where uh, you can't not own your values, values and your beliefs. Uh, as you said one time, morality is both uh, private but also uh, public. Yeah, so I went from uh, an intensely value based world. Uh, both of the, my family life um, growing up and then Catholic seminary. <clears throat> and once I got into the therapy field, I gradually left all of that behind. I was impressed with the, uh, uh, the way in which uh, much of the traditional value-based work that I had learned and the value-based world that I was in was a f pretty uh, guilt-inducing and conformity-oriented, you know, rule-following, that kind of thing. Um, and so when I get into the world of therapy, both the humanistic uh, therapies, the group 
process work and um, family therapy, marriage and family therapy, uh, I saw uh, I, I, that it's possible to help change occur without that kind of uh, what felt like a kind of moralistic overlay uh, from my origins. Uh, and uh, so I became really uh, an advocate of a values-neutral approach to to therapy. Um, we, you know, it's like we have we have the theories, we have the methods, uh, and we can help people do better with their world. Um, and that the therapist is uh, really brings a, a knowledge and professional skill in a kind of neutral way uh, to uh, to help people. Um, and um, uh, and but but eventually, um, it actually wasn't until the um, 1990s. So it, it, this this was a while uh, that uh, I began to see that there's a kind of an emptiness uh, in a in an attempt to have a value neutral approach to therapy. That uh, that really what that was. What I realized that I had given up one form of socialization, and that was a kind of a conformity do do the right thing that's set up by your tradition to a highly individualistic approach, which is do your own thing. Uh, and, um, and that any sense of obligation uh, is, uh, is something that is imposed from the outside. So in the 1970s, you know, Fritz Perls and Gestalt therapy, um, I do my thing, you do your thing. I'm not in this world to live up to your expectations. You're not in this world to live up to mine. Uh, and um, that kind of uh, hyper-individualism uh, uh, was part and parcel with certainly the individual psychotherapies of the day. And I began to read critiques of this. Um, uh, the book Habits of the Heart, was that, that was actually in the 80s. I, I got the, my decades wrong. It was in the 80s where I began to make this turn. Um, I began to read critiques of psychotherapy particularly individual psychotherapy, for promoting a kind of an ethic of individual self-interest that was undermining the sense of citizenship in the country and a sense of uh, solidarity among people. So that was was a big wake-up call for me. And then the way I want to connect this to marriage and family therapy is that there is, in this emphasis in our field, on families, on solidarity, on 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 um, people caring for each other in families, um, there is an implicit ethic there um, um, that these relationships are crucially important. But it was never, never really. It's not been well articulated in, in the field. So that's some of what I began to then think about. How do we articulate? I think an implicit systemic ethic, not just systemic systems theory, but a sense of ethics that would be systemic and relational. And I think of you as a macro family therapist. I don't know if that if that fits uh, or not for you when I say it, but talk about your desire to expand the system to the larger community or the family in the context of what's going on uh, in the larger world. Yeah, this really began for me in uh, 1978-79, um, when I was teaching actually in a family studies department at the University of Iowa and was finishing up my my clinical training for my AMFT 
uh, clinical membership and I happened to run into some family physicians, some family doctors who were on the faculty of the medical school at the University of Iowa. Uh, and um, I always say that some of the opportunities in my life have, have occurred because I'm an extrovert and so if I'm at a social occasion I'm you know, I'm talking and I'm all, you know, I'm sometimes talking loudly. Um, so I was at this new faculty gathering at the University of Iowa and I met these two family physicians who were new on the faculty of the Department of Family Practice. And they found out in talking to me that there were people like me whose field of specialty was families. At that point, I was trained in family research as well as family therapy. And they said, oh, wow, we didn't know there were people like you. We didn't know about your field. And so they actually wrote a job for me. They wrote a faculty position that family medicine was really having a lot of resources coming in to it in the late 70s. So I got this job and I, you know, I were able to stay in University of Iowa. I was able to stay there in this great town of Iowa City. And I just moved across the river to a new position. And so that was the beginning for me of understanding some of the limitations of of our field of of mft of systemic family therapy um, which was mainly focusing on the family unit itself um, and maybe the you know extended family if you were more of a family of origin person but when I started to work, uh, I was teaching family practice residents and seeing uh, uh, patients and families in the in the in the clinic, uh, and I I had this revelation that I say kind of um, with a little a little humor that I had studied family therapy, I had studied family studies for you know six or seven years, and never came across the idea that families are made up of people with bodies. It had never come up. And so when I say that, I get a little laugh. And they say, well, that's not actually true because I, I studied sex therapy, so I knew that there were penises and vaginas that were part of bodies. Uh, but the idea that families have a physical component and that illness, chronic illness, acute illness, um, uh, was a part and parcel of family life, that was not in the field. Um, not in any kind of way that I came across. Um, and And that that when a family is has an, a member with a chronic medical illness they have a chronic relationship with the healthcare system that their their relationships with their physicians and nurses and providers uh, and with insurance systems and hospital systems a larger system that those systems uh, become part of the larger dynamic of the family and that family's ability to navigate those relationships can be as important for how they do as their intra-family dynamics uh, are, how they navigate with each other inside the family. So this was like, whoa, this was a big uh, revelation to me. Uh, and, uh, and so that part of my career was devoted to trying to help people inside family medicine understand the, uh, the, that, pe that patients come with families uh, and that if you want to help a patient you got to be thinking about their family. After doing that for a number of years I began to realize that I was being changed as a family therapist. I was being changed in how I thought of families and how I saw how our field should go and then with uh, Susan McDaniel and Jerry Hepworth who were family therapy colleagues who were 
also teaching in other medical settings, uh, we then named and, and helped to develop something we call medical family therapy. So this is the first answer to your question, that, uh, that I saw these, this system of healthcare as a, we had to conceptualize that uh, as, an, as a kind of a partner with families as families go through the life course. You uh, were a pioneer of medical family therapy, which, what, what did you call it back then? I mean, they weren't calling it that. You were consulting, you were helping doctors have better yeah. bedside manner, think systemically. I mean, did you know at that time that you were creating a, uh, what would become, go on to be a important uh, specialty in the field? No, at the time I we were I was trying to help medicine, family medicine, do a better job. We called it family-centered medical care. Um, in 1983, my colleague, um, family medicine colleague Mac Baird, and I wrote the first uh, uh, book on family systems and and uh, healthcare called families, uh, family therapy and family medicine. Um, Mac was trained as a family doctor and also as an MFT, and we. We ran into each other again at a meeting with at a social as a social hour, um, and so uh, so the, f the first number of years were really devoted to shifting that field. But I I wrote a, an, a, a piece for the psychotherapy network, or then called the family therapy networker, in the 80s, in which I said I I was like a felt like a missionary, you know, a family therapy missionary to medical land. Uh, to you know, bring these uh, bring, you know bring bring the message to the uh, to the, the the natives. And what happened was, I realized that I was changed as much as they were changed. I, I was changed as a family therapist uh, by working in this other culture. And then I gradually began to realize, no, I need to be bringing. I need to bring back to my field how I've been influenced. And of course, I was having these other colleagues like Susan McDaniel, Jerry Hepworth, and others who were also influenced. And so it was in the late 80s uh, at a family process um, editorial board meeting uh, that the three of us said, we, we need to write this up and we need to have a name for it. And so we just cooked up the name medical family therapy as a, as, as, as a kind of especially within family therapy. And talk about briefly how you got from, again, your interface with uh, the medical system to even working with larger communities and, and really many of what you have known for as far as being citizen therapist and your other projects involving, uh, you know, large community groups outside of the normal scope or focus of MFT. Well, yeah, so let me, let me mention, you mentioned discernment counseling, so I'll kind of enter that way. Um, so I began to uh, work with the family lawyers, with divorce lawyers. Uh, again, the theme here is that if we're going to really help families, we need to be interacting with the systems that families are part of. Uh, and so <clears throat> I was helping collaborative family lawyers uh, work with couples in distress. <clears throat> and out of that work, came to sermon counseling, uh, a, a, a special way to work with couples on the brink of divorce. And, and it was after two and a half years of working with the, with the divorce lawyers because what they were saying is that the people we see who, who are ambivalent about divorcing, they've often, often tried couples therapy and we just don't want to send them back there. Uh, and then, so then I said, well, I've 
you know, there's this other way of working uh, that we called it, that I'm, we didn't have a name for it, but the, the lawyers actually helped me name discernment counseling. So without going into all the details about that, that part of my contributions came from interacting for several years with a group of lawyers where I had to push the boundaries of couples therapy for a particular kind of couple that they see all the time and I realize we see all the time and that is somebody leaning out of the marriage somebody leaning in so that came out of this work with with lawyers you interfaced with all these different systems doctors lawyers and you were educating them to MFT and you were hearing their need and it, it just naturally kind of fit together and it led to all these great collaborations and projects uh were you just geared towards that of, of as far as part of you being an extrovert and advocate for the profession and informing uh or did uh did you i mean just because it is a pathway pretty much any system you've interacted with has come a project a collaboration uh yeah that that i think says something about you and your ability to uh, not only think, again, macro in a larger system, but also be able to distill down uh, the central elements of systems thinking to other professionals and help them get it. Yeah, yeah. I just I, It was that medical thing that, that turned it for me. I think if I had not had that experience with medicine, I, uh, I would not have gone on to these other things. But <clears throat> I, at a personal level, <clears throat> I was so enriched and challenged uh, by working in a different setting, this medical setting. It just was sort of, I'm, I'm now, uh, you know, years later talking about how enriching it was. It was painful. It was painful too. <clears throat> because coming to grips with the limitations of my training, of my perspective, um, incorporating the biological and the larger system. So, so once I had that experience in medicine, then something opened up for me. <clears throat> about the the systems that families um, uh, interact with and so of course law is another one and so uh, I found myself really intrigued and so when lawyers would approach me and a judge approached me actually that's how I, this whole discernment counseling thing came about a judge approached me about what he was seeing in his court around couples being ambivalent about divorce but in, there was no no process set up for them now how did he find me <clears throat> i do a lot of community presentations uh you know i've written books for the lay public and, and you know about parents and marriage so this judge when he was raising his daughter he had come to one of my presentations so i was on his radar screen so when he became the chief judge of the family court in minneapolis then when he was thinking how do i get somebody to help me he then contacted me and I and I went oh this is fascinating by this point now when I interacted with law I had a way since I'd done it with medicine I had a way of of, of getting in and that way of getting in is it has to be has to be some continual conversations so the judge and I did some research uh, on divorce ambivalence and then uh, pulled together a group of collaborative lawyers uh, and we met we met um, every three weeks for two and a half years, and I got into their world, and and they, and they they they, they uh, I, so I began to understand what what they were facing, and partly discernment counseling came out of a way to help them, but also a way to help couples in our field. So, uh, and then the then to just say one other important a big a big shift for me, big one as big as those two, or larger, was in the mid '90s. 
uh, when I came across the work of Harry Boyt, who is a political theorist and also a community organizer who had uh, worked for Martin Luther King. Um, and, um, uh, and when I came across his work, he's at the University of Minnesota, was then, um, uh, it, it, what what he offered me in what he calls his public work model was a critique of professionalism uh, as something that sometimes can undermine democracy and, and I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more and a new idea of what I call citizen professional who is who is a promoter of democracy of civic engagement and so when I read his book it, it was actually it was called Building America the book was still a manuscript form and a colleague of mine sent a copy to me I said okay this is the next move for me this is the next move of, of, of in, in, involved in political theory of looking at the uh, my profession, but all professions, in light of how they promote or or or, or not uh, a, d a democratic living. So that was like bang. Okay, that's that's the that's the next step for me. I have to expand my paradigm outside of traditional professionalism. These things kind of flowed together so nicely for you, and, and everywhere you went, it kind of tied into your your core. It's interesting as we were talking about your your family of origin earlier and your Catholic upbringing and thinking of discernment counseling, which we could do a whole episode on and we probably will invite you back later to do it. But this idea that, you know, you cannot, you should really consider before you to end, end a relationship, end a marriage, you should really make an informed decision. How much did that have to do with the values you grew up with? It, I'm sure it did. <clears throat> the um, values I grew up with around marriage were you, you know, you made it work. You made it work, um, and you, you, um, you didn't have a exit ramp. Um, and uh, so those are the values I grew up with. But then I left those behind. <clears throat> In the 70s, uh, I like everybody I knew. Uh, learning to be a therapist, uh, came to view marriage more as, in terms of my professional work, uh, as, you know, basically a relationship you can freely enter, you can freely leave, and of course I believe you can freely leave. Um, uh, and when I was doing my initial couples therapy, when I had people who were <clears throat> deciding whether to walk out of the marriage and divorce or to, to keep working on it, um, I, I did it. it was simply a cost-benefit analysis for the individual. Uh, I remember, you know, getting this at a workshop somewhere, uh, talking to an individual. How will it help you in your life happiness to stay? How will it hurt you to stay? How it will help you to leave? How it will hurt you to leave? Very much like you're thinking of switching jobs, uh, and and any kind of notion of commitment once made. Uh, where your spouse built their life plan around you, and then maybe you have kids, that that commitment has some, if you will, ethical weight to it. It doesn't mean you can't decide to end that commitment. But this is not like I'm doing job A, do I want to do job B, that there is a kind of an ethical underpinning. That took me quite a while to come to, uh, with trepidation, because even though it, it there, there were values from my childhood uh, that supported that. All of my professional training, all of my professional training was in a values neutral approach. And so in the late 80s when I made that shift, 
um, it was with some trepidation about whether I was going to be evicted from, you know, from the field um, uh, by uh, saying, no, there's an ethical dimension of family life. Uh, that what I discovered is our clients know, but that as professionals, as therapists, we thought we couldn't engage that without moralizing and invading people's autonomy. You think of how the profession has changed, really starting when it was not even really a profession yet, not like an organized curriculum when you were uh, taking classes in Connecticut back in the 70s to where it is now. What do you think the biggest changes in the profession are from when you started and where, being a trendsetter yourself, where do you think we're headed as a field? Yeah, it's mixed for me. Um, the... Uh, some of the positive trends uh, have been uh, the expansion into settings where families actually, you know, live, if you will, schools, medical settings, for example. Uh, those two very prominently um, uh, involved in, uh, you know, in helping children not be. Um, placed outside of their homes, so working, you know, you know, in-home family therapy, in-home schools, medical settings. Uh, that that those are great developments, and I think they really would have uh, pleased the founders uh, quite a lot. Um, a second positive one is that we have a better evidence base. Uh, a lot of the early stuff was, you know. Uh, it just seemed like it was helpful. So we have a, we have a better evidence base. Uh, there have been new developments around attachment theory, for example, and interpersonal neurobiology. So that there's been dynamism in the field about those things. Um, on the 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 downside, um, we the economics of the field of therapy have really hit us, and so. Uh, we moved into the world of uh, diagnosing individuals in a way that was not part of the origins uh, and is difficult to do within a systemic frame. Uh, this was necessary uh, for the survival, economic survival of the profession. And I was around when those decisions were made um, that when, uh, when we were, this was in the 80s, HMOs coming in, uh, the DSM uh, three was now prominent and uh, uh, and diagnosis required, uh, and I was involved. You know, in the in those conversations, I, I had I worries about them. I wasn't a decision maker, but there were conscious decisions made that if uh, MFTs are going to make it as a profession. Uh, independent profession that are, are uh, that members of the profession had to be able to get third-party reimbursement and that meant uh, going along with the medical model uh, which is based on the diagnosis and treatment of individuals uh, and this was a crucial turning point in the field that um, may have been preordained because maybe the field would not be around okay so I'm, I'm not I'm not uh, criticizing those who took the lead then but um, but what happened in my opinion was and we didn't know it was going to happen was that a relational systemic approach to thinking about human problems and how to help 
resolve human problems. A relational systemic approach, which is at the heart of MFT, uh, has moved more to the back burner. Um, that uh, we it, to show that we're bona fide uh, mental health professionals, we we showed that we could diagnose um, with 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 anybody else, and that our treatment plans would uh, could focus on the treatment of an individual, uh, and the pull the pull of the medical model, which is individualistic, where problems exist within the skin of an individual. Uh, has really influenced the field and I think we've lost some of the dynamism of our, of our systemic relational approach. Uh, I think that's beautifully said and I think that's a struggle any MFT educator uh, try, has to deal with. How do we not forget what we came for and the powerful systemic roots, the relational ties that bind that again bring us together as, as relational healers with also fitting in to more of a mainstream mental health culture and um it's it's a it's a difficult challenge uh when you think of all the projects you've been involved in and still talking to you it's like uh you still have a lot that you are passionate about you're forming new partnerships new projects both research both community all the time we'll talk about at the end how people can find out more about that and we'll have you back on later but what do you build what do you want to be remembered most for right as as you've interviewed these pioneers in the past and now you're at, at the stage of your career where you uh, fit into that um, category yourself what do you want people to remember you most for well, that's so interesting. You would ask me that question because now I'm back to 1990 when I asked, uh, I asked what I called "What's your legacy?" to yeah. those folks. So full, kinda, full circle, my friend. I kind of have goosebumps here, yeah. um, and so w when I get a question like that that I had not thought about because I still feel like I'm, uh, I'm still kind of actively doing new things, but uh, but it's a good question. Um, um, the two things that came to me uh, were, I uh, want to be remembered for pushing the boundaries of the field, uh, pushing the boundaries into other systems, into pushing the boundaries around the, the ignoring of the ethical dimension of it, pushing the boundaries, challenging the field, new territories. And I, I'd like to be remembered for uh, uh, the idea of democracy, of, of our field of systemic family therapy, uh, promoting democracy, of the engagement of people as active agents in, in, uh, in their families and in their communities. And that's a, a big part of my, my current work. Um, one of the things I ask students now that I never ask them, and you know, all the years I trained, is how is this profession, how does it promote democracy? How does it promote the capacity for democratic living? And what I mean by democracy here is collective agency. How do we solve problems together as, as, as people, as communities, as a nation? So that's, uh, I'm, you know, I've got more work to do on that one to, to uh, help the field think of itself that way. But uh, I'm hoping before I'm finished, that will be a deeper idea in the field. Uh, beautifully said, and I, I do think of you as, you know, you know, we think of the early family therapist as kind of breaking up family homeostasis and kind of perturbing the system, pushing the system, and you've certainly done that on this more macro level, which is, uh, you know, I could not say it any better than you did. I, I think also one thing in preparing for this, and the last time 
we talked, I wasn't aware of this, that kind of full circle, you have, uh, we talked about your family of origin, but your own family, your daughter is kind of part of your work and your legacy too. So say say a little bit about that uh, and, and tell us about Elizabeth. Yeah, so Elizabeth um, Doherty Thomas, my daughter, um, she worked in HR uh, after college. Uh, and she, I remember her saying she didn't want any part of therapy, uh, although she was a psychology major. Uh, she's um, has uh, sort of tech skills, you know, IT skills, and uh, and so she liked that part of HR. Uh, and then um, she and she married another guy in the IT world, uh, and uh, uh, and then all of a sudden he one day uh, announced that he wanted to become an MFT. Uh, and whoa, that's kind of that's kind of interesting. Um, and uh, we were supportive of that. Uh, and then. Um, after my daughter had her first child and was uh, interested in uh, more flexibility with with work, um, she offered to start doing some things with me uh, to uh, promote some of the the training work and other work that I was doing. And so we formed a little family business called the Doherty Relationship Institute. And, you know, Institute, people say, where does it exist? Well, it's, you know, on my computer and hers. Um, uh, but uh, so we have then, we've worked together for 10 years now. And uh, a lot of what we do is um, is is help people, the therapists learn uh, discernment counseling. Uh, and, um, and we're also experimenting all the time with how do we get uh, the word out to everyday people um, about what our field has to offer. So, and along the all the way, so she did this for a few years with me, and she started to go to some conferences. And I remember she went to the Psychotherapy Networker conference once to kind of promote our little business, and um, and she came back from that and said, "I think that's my tribe. I think therapists and MFTs in particular are her tribe." she discovered her tribe and so she went back to graduate school as well so she is an mft uh and uh, my partner in this uh, little family business and um and i learned tremendous amount from her my goodness i mean she's she's of the internet generation and uh and i've learned a lot about how kind of hidebound we are in our language like so for example she's probably read more therapist websites than anybody else in the United States. And we talk to each other. So uh, I practice EFT with a little Gottman in there. And people don't know what the heck we're talking about. So she is a champion of the translation of our field into language and into messaging that ordinary people can pick up. I mean, she just thinks that, that MFT is a jewel that is, uh, you know, is hidden. Uh, and you know under a basket and she's determined to uncover it uh, for the, the the nation and I'm along for that ride and learning a lot uh, what a what a cool story and, and a way to experience your father in a different way before she found her tribe did she realize what you had accomplished in the field before she entered it herself or only once she got in it did she realize uh, you know, my dad is not just my dad. He's, you know, Bill Doherty, who's his, uh, you know, transcended uh, family therapy in a lot of ways and really impacted uh, the, uh, the the field in significant ways. Did she get that before or only after she joined the tribe? I'll have to ask her. <laughs> I, I think she got it more after. Um, 
than before. I, it, you know, it was kind of funny, and she she would come back from class and say, "They mentioned you today." <laughs> so, I think that's probably how she she saw it more. Yeah, I asked that because I've been asking these uh, luminaries and model developers as I've been conducting this interview series, and almost every single person, their family. Um, has not really seen the impact. Uh, they just know them as dad or mom or uh, sibling. And it's so funny talking about full circle, this whole interview. Your parents were uh, pre-psychological, as you told us, and uh, and very salt of the earth, working class. And you raised your brothers, I mean, uh, uh, so to speak, Um I wonder, do they um, do they have a sense of what you accomplished in in our profession? Well, when I was on Oprah, that that made an impact. Yes, um, if I remember my my father had passed away by then, but my mother like, okay, if Oprah recognizes Billy, <laughs> <laughs> then that means something. And I have a little story about that. She told me that she know she could tell that Oprah liked me. And I said, well, how, how do you know that, Mom? She's, and she said, she shook your hand longer than anybody else's. <laughs> and I went back to the tape. And sure enough, you get out a stopwatch, you'll see that my mother... Your mother was a process, process expert. She didn't realize she wasn't a family therapist, but she picked up on that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's very clear. Anybody that listens to this can tell your passion uh, for the field, what it was and still is and still have a lot to accomplish. And, you know, we need more Bill Doherty. So I thank you so much for the time. I, you have multiple things to promote. What's the easiest way, uh, place to go if somebody wants to catch up on what you are doing currently, Bill? You can plug anything you want to. <clears throat> oh, boy. Well, I guess uh, people could go to the Doherty Relationship Institute. Um uh, that would be a place to start, and we can we can talk someday about the other things I'm doing, like in my work with Better Angels to depolarize America. They could they could go to a website called Better Angels, um, and uh, so those those would be two. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I look forward to talking to you again in in, in the future. Well, this has been a great pleasure for me. I really appreciate it, Eli. Great. There you have it. Another great installment of the AAMFT interview on the podcast. And that was really a full circle experience for Bill. I mean, it's the podcast at its best when it just feels like a free-flowing conversation with so much history. And, you know, you can read in your textbooks or you can read journal articles, but as I've always said, to to go one-on-one and to hear the story behind the model developer and the person is always such a rich experience. And... I'm just a therapist just like you, not a professional journalist or interview, and I love having conversations like that. Bill Doherty, quite a man, and certainly bridging the past, the present, and the future of our great profession. And uh, discernment counseling, certainly a requested topic on the podcast, so we will have Bill back later to do a deep dive just into what he has really become known for over the past decade or so. Requests are welcome. The best way to get a hold of us is if you want to send an email to communications at aamft.org. Or you can join the conversation on Twitter. And the handle is at the AAMFT. If you want to get a hold of me personal, I'm at Dr. Eli Live on Twitter. Find us wherever you find your most popular podcast. On Apple Podcasts. 
Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Check us out. Until next week, my friends, stay systemic. <laughs>